0: Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14, <clears throat> continuing our series, The Good Life, a series through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. It's the word of the Lord. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We just pray, Lord, right now over your word, word that needs nothing added to it, nothing subtracted from it, A word that was God-breathed through men as they spoke and were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now it is being spoken into our hearts and lives, and we're asking, God, what you would have us know from your word today would pierce deeply. I pray for those of us who are are on the verge, just walking the line right now between the narrow gate and the wide gate. Just as we sang a few minutes ago, because of your love, we are not shaken. We will not be shaken. Perhaps some of us are in this building right now thinking that we're, we're feeling a little shaky. We don't know what we're supposed to do. I pray that we would get a sense of we get a deep sense of what you're saying. And I pray that as your word declares, no one can come to the Father except that the Son, uh, except that the Father draws them. No one can come to you. And I pray that God, you would be present in this place to draw. That you would draw and tug on hearts, move on minds, unblind eyes, unstop ears, break chains, release from bondage, expel demonic powers, do ever you want to do in this place today to get people through the door and i pray that today you would cause a mighty destruction to come upon the gates of hell today just as you humiliated satan on the cross and in your resurrection you would now put salt in his wounds And make a wonderful name for yourself. Raise the banner of your glory high. And make it known again as you have day after day throughout the centuries that you are alive. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard people say something like this? Or perhaps you have said or felt something like this? Churches are all about preaching judgment and repentance, and sin. I wish they would be more like Jesus. I wish churches would stop preaching about judgment and sin and repentance and preach more like Jesus. That's a little problematic because Jesus preached more about judgment than he did about heaven. He also preached about love because God is love, and that, I think, is perhaps what a lot of people just wish the balance would be struck, and I wish that too. I want to be more loving. I want to act more loving. I want to speak more loving. I also want to speak more truthfully. I also want to be more bold. I also want to be more courageous. I also want to tell people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And I want to be able to do those things in a spirit of love. I don't think any one of us is tempted to say, I want to be less loving. I think what many of us face, you know, out of our bleeding hearts for people is can we just dumb down what the Bible says about judgment. The fact is, Jesus preached about judgment. He preached that there would come a day where people would be judged for the way they lived their lives, what they did with their lives, specifically what they did with Jesus. And in the rest of this chapter, as if he didn't get feisty in the beginning chapters of the Sermon on the Mount... There is no mistake about it right now. And in the verses that we have left to come, closing out Matthew chapter 7, we're going to see it. Jesus gets a little feisty. And it starts with a little bit of what looks like an ultimatum. Straight out the gate, enter by the narrow gate, period. That's it. Your only option, this is what Jesus is saying to all who will hear, you have one option, the only good option, Enter by the narrow gate. In other words, he is giving people a line to cross. He's drawing a line in the sand, figuratively speaking, saying you got to decide who or what you want to live for and what you're going to do with all that I've been telling you. There are not many options available to you with what, what I'm supposed to do. You have one of two options. Enter the narrow gate or don't. There's a hard way, that narrow gate that he uses, that that metaphor. And there's an easy way, or the wide gate that he speaks about. There's a hard way, that is to forsake all, to follow Christ. That's the hard way that he's speaking about. Where he says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way. I am the gate. I am the shepherd of the sheep. I'm the gate. I'm the passage. I'm the journey. I'm all of those things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's an easy way. The hard way is very simple. If you've been reading along with us for any length of time, it seems to be very straightforward in the words of Jesus. The hard and narrow way is to forsake all to follow me. That would mean the easy way is the opposite. It's to keep all, preserve all, protect all in order to serve self. It's being self-serving and self-loving and self-worshiping. It's setting myself up as a God instead of the one true God. It is causing the universe and everything in it to revolve around me. Now, there are a lot of different varieties of that. There are different ways of doing that. But at the end of the day, Jesus says there's two options available to you. Choose the narrow gate or choose the wide gate. Our culture and our society is easily governed by the easy road. Speaking about serving the self and revolving around, everything revolving around the self, you don't even have to look too far into culture or society. You just look at the city of Santa Barbara. Everything, almost, is governed or at least influenced by the self-centered tendency. Our end goal is always us. Everything that you are being told Everything that you are being influenced by, everything that you see are being advertised to, everything that you open up, everything that you peer into, everything that you try out has at some level this picture of self-centeredness. The message that's being sent to us by our culture and by society is at the end of the day, you want the good life? It's all about you. So just be all about you and you'll find what you're looking for. Worship yourself serve yourself, use everybody around you for yourself, use everything for the end goal of yourself. And if you treat yourself the way that you're supposed to be treated, you will achieve the good life, whatever that is. Now that type of attitude, that type of mentality has easily infiltrated the religion of a lot of people. So it's not just a Santa Barbara thing. For a lot of people, it's a spiritual thing. There's a book I've brought up from time to time by a couple sociologists, Christian Smith and uh, Melinda Denton, who together in 2006, endeavored to create a research project of young people all across the nation, very in-depth research project in which they wanted to spell out and describe the tone and flavor of people's Christian spirituality. In other words, they saw the statistics like many of us see that it's something like 70% of all of America is a confessing Protestant Christian and they were like, hmm, that's interesting. Over three quarters of America uh, professes Christ. Well, they wanted to go a little deeper and say, what do people mean by that? What do people, what's their perception of Christianity? What do they think they're, they're signing up for? And after researching, studying, interviewing, over the course of years, thousands of young people in all different stretches of life across the nation their informa- the information that they accumulated was startling. There was a lot in it. I'm going to spare you all of those details. One thing that came up repeatedly was our religion is therapeutic. Here's what I mean by therapeutic. It serves to make us feel good. So you want to know why so many people profess Christ that don't actually follow Christ? It's because he makes them feel good. Christianity, for a lot of people in our country, in our state, in our city, is all about feeling good. Jesus is there to make me feel good. It's a therapeutic religion. In other words, this is all about me. Church is all about me. Worship is all about me. I read the Bible to find out more about me. I join a Bible study because I have needs. I do this because I have needs. It's all about me. Christianity becomes for some people a religion of me. And what this looks like is God is all about my happiness, so we think. His whole universe centers around my happiness. Therefore, if I serve him, I'll be happy. I won't suffer. I won't have any problems in life. And if I do have problems in life, and if I do have hardships, and if I do have difficulties, and if I do have suffering, it must mean that he's upset with me because I'm not doing something right. And the moralistic cycle continues. Try to do better and become better Christians to make God happy. Why? Not even because we want him to be happy, but because we want to feel better about ourselves. This is many people's religion. You don't have to read too deep to figure this out in a lighthearted, kind of a joking manner. Ask yourself this. When was the last time you considered yourself to be blessed? And why did you think you were blessed? Chances are it's because you experienced something really good, or things were going your way, or you were feeling particularly happy about something that was happening to you, therefore, blessed. We always use the term blessed to describe good things happening to us, don't we? Let's bless this food. We're blessed if we get a new car, but we're not blessed if we get a flat tire. We're blessed if we have good health, but we're not blessed if we have the flu. We're blessed if our church is cutting edge and overflowing, but we're not blessed if we're being persecuted for our faith. In fact, later tonight, I want you to do an experiment. I want you to go as the sun is setting on Instagram and look on hundreds of posts with sunsets Beautiful sunsets with people's feet sticking out into the shot as they're reclining with a cup of coffee or a glass of Merlot. And what's under their headline? Hashtag blessed. That's all that was needed. I didn't even need to preach through the Sermon on the Mount. There it is right there. Blessed is sunsets. Blessed is not rain. Just kidding. What we learned through the Beatitudes was what blessed really means, right? You guys remember that? If you weren't here at the time, I'll just remind you. Blessing has nothing to do with what you have. It doesn't even have to do with your personal happiness. You can be sad and blessed at the same time. Why? Because blessing is a kingdom word. Blessing has to do with a person's proximity to the kingdom of God. The closer you are to the kingdom of God, the more blessed you are. That means you could be bawling your eyes out over some personal loss and still feel the presence of God's kingdom by you. Therefore, blessed. You can be being persecuted for your faith. In fact, isn't that what Jesus told us? Matthew chapter five. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Notice, nowhere in that list is Jesus saying, blessed are people who have a lot of stuff, who, are going, uh, who things are going well for, who have great jobs, an incredible income, who have a large family and a lot of things and are doing well. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are mourning, those who are hungry for righteousness. It's the people who least deserve the kingdom that are blessed because it is is an act of grace. Blessing has to do with a person's proximity to the kingdom of God. So the truth is, you can actually be looking at sunset while drinking latte and truly be blessed. It has nothing to do with your latte. And it's okay to post those pictures. I'm not getting on your case. Post them away. As long as we know what true blessing is, it has to do with the kingdom of God. Blessing refers to the kingdom of the future reaching into the present and touching your life in some way. Blessed. That's why the person who says, I am hungry for righteousness, well, they are then satisfied. Blessed. Blessing is a kingdom word. And the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, easy isn't always a good thing. The easy route isn't always the right way to go. In fact, Jesus says as much in that first verse, the way is easy that leads to destruction. In fact, in this case, the Bible equates the easy way with death. Now, I want to be careful. Not everything that's easy is bad, right? When you go to the grocery store and every single line is like 20 people deep and you have three items and there's an express line waiting for you and you're like, Oh, I want to go to the express line, but Chris Lazo said, I need to go to the line that's 20 deep because it's harder. (laughs) No, 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 no. Go express line. Not everything easy is bad. This text is speaking just, it's speaking about following Jesus. It's about discipleship. It means following Christ, not following yourself or any other thing. So, this wide gate, this metaphor that Jesus is speaking about, the wide gate, the easy route, the popular way that, re- that leads to destruction is referring to any counterfeit or any replacement to following Jesus Christ. Any idol that rears its head and tries to tantalize you, to entice you, anything that rears its ugly head or that puts itself up against the knowledge of Christ, those are the wide gates, the popular ways. It's anything that's not following Jesus. But even right there, that's too easy for us to just say and leave the building. It's too easy for us to, give us to give lip service to something like that. I can easily say to you right now, I love Jesus, done. And perhaps you can say the same thing to me, I love Jesus, and then go about your life not following him. Anybody can say, I love Jesus. In fact, anyone could say, I follow Jesus, but what does the wide gate look like day in and day out? I just want to give you three easy examples for no other reason that they're just common and that you probably run into them on a regular basis. Choices. I don't know what to call them, so I kind of made up my own words. The first one is compartmentalism. <laughs> in other words, you talked about this before, you, you kind of have compartments in your life and some of them are sacred to you. Now you might, you might give a lot of your life over to the Lord but you've compartmentalized certain things that he can't have. It could be different for everybody. For someone, it could be their sexuality. Well, you can, you know, you can dictate anything you want in my life, Lord, but my sexuality, that's mine. Hands off. It might be uh, finances. Well, you can tell me about sexuality, God. You can, you know... Tell me how to worship. You can tell me uh, to go on missions to New Guinea, but don't touch my finances. Could be relationships. Don't touch that. Could be your past. God might be wanting to heal you, but you don't want to even go there, so you you put a lid over your past. It could be anything. But it's compartmentalizing. Certain things in your life God can't have. God only gets a part of you. The second thing, uh, another Another way of seeing the wide gate is supplementalism. That's my favorite. Just made that one up. God is a supplement to everything else. In other words, God gets added to what's already going on. You have your life. Things are great. You kind of want it to stay the way that it is. It's going uh, fine. You have a five-year plan. And you like God. You want him to come along for the ride. And so you add him to what you already have. And God can be there so long as he enhances the good vibes. Okay? Relativism. Here's another one. These are just, just things to get you thinking about what the wide gate might look like. Relativism. I didn't make that one up. That's an actual word. God only has a say in your life when you like what he's saying. And this could come in a, a variety of different phrases. You know, you might have heard, heard this or even said this. That's true for you, but not for me. Well, if there's objective truth, isn't it true? True, true? Like for all people, true? Isn't two plus two equals four true for you? Just as true for me, whether I disagree with it or not. Certainly there are things God tells us that are true. I would hope. That's true for you, but not for me. Or, you know, that works for you, but not, not so much for me. I'm not into that. I like the God of love, but not so much the God of judgment. I like the way Jesus talks about the poor. I don't like the way Paul talks about sex. I like this part of the Bible. I don't really like that part of the Bible. God only has a say in your life when you like what he's saying. These are some examples... Where exclusive allegiance to Jesus is kind of put on hold. We either give him part of our lives, or we add him to an already pre existing plan and agenda, or we let him tell us things that we already want to hear. However, way you shape it or paint it, it's not really following Jesus. It's adding him, it's manipulating him, it's carving him into your own image in one way or another. Any other way outside of exclusive allegiance to Jesus is a wide gate that leads to ruin. Jesus calls people to follow him. You may say, well, wait, 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 wait. You're getting complicated with these words, Chris. Now, you told me months ago that it was just enough to believe in Jesus, and I did that back in 1982 at an Easter service. And now I want to live my life the way that I want to live it. And later, when I die, I'll see Christ face to face, and then we'll, you know, we'll carry off where we started back in the 80s. But you said, and the Bible says, it's enough to believe in Jesus. Right? Right. <laughs> so you guys are all getting nervous. But the type of belief that the Bible has in mind is one that ends with following the Lord to whom you have put your trust in. To believe, as the Bible pictures it, to trust in Christ and turn the other way is no trust at all. The type of belief and faith and trust that the Bible has in mind, which is different than so many people's today, is not some blind intellectual assent to a list of doctrines. Christianity is not believe these ten teachings or these ten doctrines and you're in. It's not go to church a hundred times and when your attendance is matching uh, what it's supposed to look like in heaven, then you're in. It's not, well, if you do certain things and look a certain way and believe a certain fashion, if you go to a particular church, if if you've done all of these things, then you're in. It's do you want to follow the Lord? Is it that important to you that you're willing to throw it all away to go after him? It is not a single momentary decision. It is an entire life shaped in a new direction. Many people confess Jesus Christ in name but don't follow him. That is a problem. Jesus will have some sober things to say about such people in the verses to come. I'm hoping to get those people's attention this morning before we get to those warnings later. People who confess Christ in name but have no intention of following him are the ones who live outside of the narrow gate. And we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said a lot of people are going to do that. It's an easy, popular route. It's hard to follow after me because I'm asking you for a lot, I'm asking you for everything. What the Bible offers in the face of what culture is offering is a hard way, a difficult way, an unpopular way, where we're told to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus you might ask yourself why on earth would anyone choose the hard way over the easy way well I'll just put it in the words of Jesus himself for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life something that costs you everything but gives you everything in return the only way to attain abundant life eternal life true joy and satisfaction to know what it really means to be truly human To be made in the image of God and to worship Him as we were created to do so, to find life, that which we have been missing this whole time. That missing element is only found in the narrow gate, which is Jesus Christ. Every other way is easy on the path, it's easy on the journey, it's easy in the process, maybe at times, but it leads you to somewhere you don't want to go. And the testimony of the Sermon on the Mount is that the good life, contrary to what you have been told by everything else around you, the good life is not trying to secure earthly comforts and pleasure. It's not trying to surround yourself with everything that you think you need. It's not trying to push people down, stepping on their backs in order to serve yourself. It's not trying to get yourself ahead. It's about giving up everything that you have in order to follow him. It's giving him exclusive rights over your life as the rightful king of your life. It is essentially saying, I make a crummy king and I need a better one. And there is only one who is worthy of that type of authority in my life the man who pulled off his own death and resurrection. That's what you're being called to. It may start with a sinner's prayer. It may start with a raised hand at Easter, it may start with a baptism, but it ends with a lifelong, eternal journey into glory. It ends by following in the footsteps of your master. It starts with being born again to a new hope. It continues by following a new Lord day by day. You may ask, well, what does that look like? Well, let's just use some of those old examples where we used to compartmentalize our life and say, well, God, you can have this, this, and this, but I get to keep this. Now you're saying, God, you get it all. Let no stone be left unturned in my life. You obviously know better than me. You care for me. And you are worthy of everything that I have. Start turning stones, Lord. Lord. What's left unturned? We get this exact command by Jesus himself, Matthew sixteen twenty four, when he tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's it right there. You want to know what Christianity is about? That is it right there. Notice that Jesus never said to Andrew, Peter, James, and John, hey, if you want to be all about me, just believe these four things. Although belief is very important. He didn't say that. Nor did he say, well, if you just sign on the dotted line on the back of this bulletin, then you're in. Nor did he say, well, if you cast out a few demons, you know, I'll let you pass. Nor did he say, well, if you have a lot of spiritual gifts, I guess you're in. He didn't say any of that stuff. He said, choose me for life. Deny yourself, give yourself up and serve and come after me. Now, self-denial is not self-hatred. I'm not talking about self-loathing, where we turn into these depressing people that just hate ourselves at every turn. Jesus is not telling us to hate ourselves here when he tells us to deny ourselves. The two are not the same. It's not, I hate myself, but rather, I have found someone that I love more. That's why the greatest commandment in all of the Bible, according to Jesus, Luke 10, is you shall love the Lord your God. With what? With everything right with all of your heart with all of your soul with all of your strength with all of your mind and your neighbor is yourself in other words he's saying with the way uh, with the way that you feel with the way that you think with the way that you act with your behaviors and your actions and your thinking abilities your decision making abilities even your social circles i want it all i want you to deny yourself in order to focus all of that attention on what really matters the god of the universe and out of that will flow the good life. But make no mistake about it, he wants it all. One of the things we could ask if this is what we signed up for, in this thing called Christianity, following Jesus, is to begin asking ourselves, getting in the habit of saying, what am I hiding from you, Lord? What needs to be put under your lordship? He will, he will tell you. He will always answer that prayer. Perhaps we have been supplementing our lives with God. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to go the narrow gate, the narrow path? Easy. You let God set the agenda from now on. Second Corinthians 5, verse 14 through 15. I love this passage. For the love of Christ controls us. <laughs> because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Listen to this. And Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him, for who their, uh, for their sake died and was raised. In other words, Jesus didn't just die for the forgiveness of sins; He died so that you would have something greater to live for, namely Himself. And He earned that place by raising Himself up from the dead. That is why, at the core of the Christian's prayer, is "Let Your Kingdom come." And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you might begin to ask yourself, well, what is my Father doing today? And how can I align my life with that? You begin to look through the scriptures and seeing the vision of God's kingdom in there and saying, in what ways can I realign my life with what I see? Lastly, you may be in the habit of, you know, giving. Listening to God in the parts that you, you have accepted and like and are comfortable with, leaving the rest because you don't like them, what would that look like for the person who wants to follow Jesus? Well, it means that you're in a relationship now where that person can contradict you. If you're in a marriage with somebody, it's brought this up from time to time, And you were in a marriage with someone for 20 years and you never disagreed with anybody. Or I should say, you never allow that person to contradict you, you've got problems. You have deeper problems than just how to argue. You have a problem of love. If my wife does not have the ability and authority to disagree and contradict what I say, we don't love each other. we are different humans cut out of different shapes of cloth with different ways of doing things and different ways of thinking things. And there are going to be times in real relationships where you experience conflict. If you don't let that person conflict with you, you have a reason to question how much you really love and trust them. If you live in a marriage where that person can't disagree or contradict you? You don't have a real deep relationship. You have a stepdad spouse. You have a robot that's just there to do whatever you want. How many of you know that doesn't exist? In true relationships that are born out of love, there is that ability to contradict each other. I am able to say to my wife, I love you so much, and I'm gonna trust what you have to say. Plus, you're like 99% right most of the time, so there's that. There are gonna be times in your life where God is gonna contradict you. You're not always right. Sometimes you're wrong. God is never wrong. He's always right. There are gonna be times where you open up the scriptures and you're gonna be, be prodded. How many of you have felt that through the Sermon on the Mount? As we've been going through things and we thought we were, we were great, we were hot stuff, and then Jesus came along and said, it's not enough that you don't swear. You need to be people that are of so much integrity that people don't even ask you to swear; they just believe your yes and your no. Or when he came along and said, "It's just—it's not—you're not righteous because you haven't murdered anybody today. You want real righteousness? Don't hate. Don't have any contempt. Then come talk to me. It's not enough that you don't cheat on your spouse. What I'm looking for is a heart that's free from lust, and I could pull that off if you let me." How many of you have gone through the Sermon on the Mount itself and been like, oh my gosh, I'm worse than I thought? That's God contradicting you. And the scripture tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It is, as the author of Hebrews tells us, a double-edged sword. I love how Eugene Peterson translated it. It's a surgeon's scalpel. It's able to get into the deep parts of your life to take out that cancerous tumor. Hebrews goes on to tell us that it has the ability, the word of God has the ability to discern between the thoughts and intentions of your, your heart. The Bible is able, like a mirror, to expose things in your life that you didn't even know were there. God's going to contradict you. Don't even be mystified about whether that's going to happen or not. He's going to do it for your joy and for His glory. Are you going to let Him? Some of you might say, well, yeah, of course. I read the Bible like 20 times a day. <laughs> Problem is, I haven't found a contradiction yet. <laughs> Guess I'm pretty good. I'm awesome. God needs like 10 more of me. (laughs) Ask yourself this. What are people in your life saying? (laughs) 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 What's your your wife or husband think about that? Share them that little nugget of truth. (laughs) A little divine revelation. What about the men or women in your life that really know who you are? They know your dirt. What do they say about that? The Bible has this idea that we were not meant to follow Jesus alone, but that we were meant to follow it within a community of like-minded individuals, meaning that there should be men and women, depending on what you are, involved in your life that have the authority to speak truth into your life. And to contradict you. Galatians 6.1. Brothers or sisters. If anyone is caught in any transgression. You who are spiritual. Uh, that's not you who are uptight. Okay. <clears throat> Just means you who are Christians. Should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Or her. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So there's a note of humility and love right there. Right. So it's a balance. But we should be. Uh, we all have blind spots. And the ingenuity of the human heart is unbelievable in the lengths that it will go to be able to read scripture and say, you know what, I know what that's saying right there, but I'm the one exception. And here's, you know, why. We need people in our lives who are like, you are silly, bro. You need to get right. We need people who can see our blind spots and are willing to tell us. are willing to ruffle our feathers for our own joy and for God's glory So you might say this, if you want to grow in this area, you might ask the Lord, hey, in what ways am I refusing to do what you say? Psalm 51, end of Psalm 51, show me, expose in me any wayward way within me. Reveal some of those things. And you could add to that this, are you using people to tell me this, Lord? In fact, I would go that extra mile and just ask somebody that you trust and who knows you, hey, what can I work on? See where that gets you. I'm just using a, you know, this isn't an exhaustive list, just some common examples from real experiences that we have on a day to day basis of what it looks like to follow Christ. To show us that anyone could give lip service to Jesus. It's not hard, and it's not impossible, and it's not supernatural to say, yeah, I'm all about God, I'm spiritual. I go to church. I love Jesus. Anybody can say that. It's another thing entirely to follow him. Christians are followers. Christians are not simply talkers. We are followers of Christ. We have been confronted by our baptism, by the statement being made by a Lord that you are dead and you are now to find your new life in Christ. Your life is over, it's done. Galatians chapter two, verse 20. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave his life up for me. Christians are people who have died to their old life and have chosen in their new life to follow Christ through the narrow gate. Because no matter how hard it gets, the joy gets grown even more so. No matter how dark the tunnel seems at times, and doesn't Christianity, doesn't that journey seem dark at times? Let's not treat it like a rose garden. There's death involved. There's hardship involved in following Jesus. There's disappointment, even some disillusionment. Hard things that come our way by choosing to follow Christ. And we want to choose the easy way out. But we choose the hard way. We choose Christ. Because no matter how hard it gets, we know whom we have chosen. Christ, lest we forget, reaches down to remind us no matter how good it is to follow Jesus, many will choose wrongly. Those who enter by the wide gate are many, he says. Those who choose destruction are many because the way is easy and wide. There is a belief It's been rampant within the church for centuries that every now and then rears its ugly head whenever it's trendy, called universalism. The belief that I can understand, but deeply reject, that somehow, at the end of the days, there will be no judgment. Everybody will wind up in the same place, everybody will be saved regardless of how they lived their life or what they decided to do with Jesus. This is not a new thought. It's an old one. It just cycles around every now and then. And I, know where it, I understand where it comes from. It comes from the bleeding heart that I have and you have that desperately wants people to get right. And it's that twisting of what we see to make that happen, saying, maybe there isn't going to be judgment. Maybe there's not gonna be a giving of an account. Maybe somehow, even the person that destroys other people's lives, that gives a finger to God, that goes to their deathbed in rebellion to God will somehow be turned into a robot and they will wind up in the right place. I understand the bleeding heart that wants that. I wish that were true too. But that is not what we see in the scriptures. We see judgment. Judgment. Because God is holy. We see Him laying out a process of repentance because He's merciful. And we see time and time again these warnings for people to turn away from their sin. Not because God is this angry person who just wants to beat us over the head, but because the kingdom of God is coming near. And everyone who takes that seriously has opportunity to repent of their sins and to enter the kingdom. But make no mistake about it. It has been appointed for man to die once and then will come judgment. And now, as the author of Hebrews, uh, as, as the apostle Paul tells us, he commands all people everywhere to repent because Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. Jesus himself will face every human being. And you will tell him yourself what you did in this life with his words. And I'm begging you this morning to deal with it now. If universalism is true, and it is not, what reason do we have to even be here? If you can live your whole life doing whatever you want, only knowing that someday it's all going to work out, then why, why am I even preaching today? Why are you even going to church? Don't you have better things to do? I preach because judgment is real. And I preach because his mercy is likewise real. And I preach because people need to know that it's real. And I preach because the one who will judge the living and the dead has come way before that moment arises to offer you salvation in his name. And in so doing, he deals a death blow to universalism. No, you got to make a decision. And you got to make it right now. The reason we don't make decisions like that, well, the reason people choose wrongly, some of you are familiar with the text in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. We hear the word of the kingdom, it says. And for some, it falls on rocky ground, and so the one who hears the word immediately receives it with joy, has no root in themselves. They endure for a while, but it gets hard. Life gets hard, and they fall fall off the path. Or another example, Jesus tells us the word of God is sown among thorns and so the person hears the word of the kingdom but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the world. Now it's all about me again. I need to take care of myself and it proves unfruitful. But then there's that last example. What was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. In other words, in some people, their hearts are soft to the word of God. They receive what he is saying, and it lasts. Brothers and sisters, we have been going through the word of the kingdom for nine months. We have started in September going through the Sermon on the Mount, listening to the words of Jesus like a running faucet for nine straight months. And I have to ask you, how's the soil? What are you doing with it? Are you receiving the word of God implanted? Jesus' words to you are so simple. As simple as they are somber, enter the narrow gate. Don't choose the popular path. Don't go to the counterfeits. Don't choose the idols. Don't choose yourself. Leave it all and follow me. You'll see that it works out. Don't go with the flow. Consider eternity and take a hard look at your life right now. Who are you really following in this life? Where is your life directed? Are you deceiving yourself? Are you living in sin? Are you rebelling against God but just hiding behind a thin veneer of religious behavior? You might be fooling everybody in your life. You will not fool the Holy Spirit who is here now prodding you to get right. If this is you, take stock of Jesus' words. His claims to be Lord and Master and Savior And repent of your rebellion so that times of refreshing can reach you. Repent of your self-worship. Repent of your sin. And accept the free gift of God in Christ. Believe in him and follow him for the rest of your life. You say, well, I tried that and life is hard and I can't do it by myself. Yeah. No news flash there. You say, well, I'm addicted to drugs and alcohol and I can't pull myself up. And life is impossible and I'm in bondage and I can't do it by myself. Yeah, that's why the good news of the kingdom is quote unquote good news. It's because you can't do it by yourself. You say my marriage is on the rocks and I'm about to give up. She's done this, and he's done that, and he's done this, and they've done that, and it is over, and it is rocky, and it is falling apart, and I'm about to give up, and I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to try this anymore. I don't believe in it anymore. It's too hard. Nothing can save me. Nothing can save my marriage. Nothing can save my substance abuse. Nothing can break my chains except for Jesus Christ. Don't you see at the moment that you are able to discern, I can't do this anymore. Is the moment that you have found out the gospel. It is at the moment that you have reached the barrel that you believe. Do you? Jesus has the authority and power to restore your marriage. No matter how many times you have cheated on each other, he has the ability to put back the pieces. You can't. He can If he can pick up his dead body and bring it from the grave, he can surely bring life into your dead marriage. You're addicted to drugs and alcohol, he can break those chains. You've got demons, he can expel them, no problem. That's like Jesus 101. You've got depression, you've got sadness, you've got loneliness, you've got emptiness, you have no direction in life, you don't know what to do, you have no road to go on. Easy for Jesus. What are you gonna do with his words? You say, well, I've made that decision and I've been following him my whole life. Yeah, well, what about your family? What about your friends? What about your coworkers? What about your neighbors? Jesus says most people will go through the wide gate. He's not talking about some empty statistic. He's talking about your friends. He's talking about your dad, your mom, your brothers, your uncles, your coworkers. And you're there in their lives with the treasure of the kingdom. Paul said in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe if they've never heard, and how will they hear without someone preaching? Let me tell you something. Paul's not talking about me. He's talking about you. And you can build a relationship and build trust and learn about them and hang out with them and get to know them as long as you want but man you are you are charged to one day talk about Jesus They're standing on the line They're standing on the line between heaven and hell and God has put you in their lives please talk about Jesus sometime I pray right now in the name of Jesus that it would be for some of you like the prophet Jeremiah that he would try to contain the gospel within him, but it was in him like a burning fire welling up in his stomach. He could not contain it. I pray that for those of you that are shy about it, it will just begin to well up in you. I pray for the gossip of the gospel to come upon you right now in Jesus' name, that there will be moments in your life where you don't know what hits you, but you would just have to, you just have to talk about him. You just have to talk about what he's done in your life. I pray for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be gossiped through this city. That people who do not know him will hear about him from his representatives in this city. Because eternity is too long, and hell is too awful, and Jesus is too wonderful for us to be dinking around all our lives worried that we're going to be stepping on toes. You step on toes. You step on their toes that their souls might be saved. You ruffle their feathers. You risk losing friends because some of them will reject you, and some of them, their hearts will come alive right before your eyes. The gospel is, after all, the announcement. That the kingdom of God has been made lavishly available to undeserving people. In Jesus Christ, where by putting our trust in Him, His death and resurrected life, we can experience transformation. That is available to all who, looking at Jesus and seeing what they see, are able to say, "I am willing to lose everything that the world has to offer." to crawl my way through the narrow gate to go after that. So beautiful is that, that Paul begged people. In fact, he said, my, basically my job, I'm an ambassador for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So deeply did he believe in what he knew, that his entire job was centered around begging, pleading with people, to come back to the Lord I believe it too and so I plead with you and I pray that after today you will plead with others Heavenly Father just ask in the name of Jesus that as we sing today your Holy Spirit would be present to bless in a particular way I want to pray first and foremost for people in this room who have been faking it for many years and doing a pretty good job of it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would confront the hypocrisy and that you would reveal to them a better way. I pray that the line would be drawn in the sand for many people today and they would choose rightly. I pray for those who are afraid afraid of what other people are gonna think, afraid of what's gonna happen to their life, afraid, struggling with doubt, struggling with any of those things, I pray that Holy Spirit, you would reveal to them the glory of Jesus Christ in such a way that they would see him as the biggest treasure they've ever seen. For the rest of us, God, I pray for boldness and courage to go out of this place with a new way to look at Santa Barbara this beautiful city that you have allowed us to live in, the American Riviera, I pray that we would see in a very somber way, thousands of people who are choosing wrongly. I pray that it would break our hearts. I pray that it wouldn't sit well with us. That I pray that we, in the deepest part of who we are, because we know you and the power of your resurrection, would begin to beg people. that You have put in our lives to consider Christ and his kingdom. And we ask, in lieu of that, that we would witness in our lifetime a great harvest in this city. Lord start with us show us who you are and make us glad for following you In Jesus name.